Hey guys, and welcome to a new episode. This is your host, Mohammed. We'll continue with our GU review, and we'll start with a question from yesterday. What is the differential for a T2 dark renal lesion? We said three things will give you a T2 dark renal lesion. One is lipid-poor AML, hemorrhagic cyst, and papillary RCC. Again, lipid-poor AML, hemorrhagic cyst, and papillary RCC. Papillary RCC is the lesion that is not vascular. If you remember, we have clear cell, which is a vascular tumor, and papillary RCC, which is not a vascular tumor and has an excellent prognosis. What is the differential for a striated nephrogram? First of all, I would like to say that striated nephrogram can be normal finding in pediatric patients. Now, striated nephrogram represent linear lucencies from the cortex or from the renal cortex extending into the medulla with areas of contrast filling or contrast enhancement and areas of lack of that contrast enhancement, which gives us the striated nephrogram. Now, the differential depends if we have it bilateral or unilateral, can be due to polynephritis, renal vein thrombosis, infiltrative process, particularly lymphomas, obstruction, and trauma or contusion. Imaging properties of uric acid stones. Now, uric acid stones are typically not seen on x-ray because they have low attenuation and low Hounsfield unit. Typically, the name tells us what they are. Uric acid, meaning they're seen in low pH or acidic composition of the urine, and that also tells us the management of these stones. These stones basically are managed by neutralizing the acidic urine using either potassium citrate or sodium bicarbonate that elevates the pH of urine. Once this is elevated, it will dissolve the stone, and so no intervention is needed. Again, uric acid stones, they're acidic stones due to urine composition. They're not typically seen on x-ray. Obviously, we see them on CT scan, and they're treated using by making the urine more basic. Common etiology that will give you papillary necrosis I remember a few ones. There's a mnemonic, I think it's postcard, which talks about each of them. So postcard P is for polynephritis, O is for obstruction, S is for sickle cell, T is for tuberculosis, C in card is for cirrhosis, A is for analgesics, R is for renal vein thrombosis, and D is for diabetes. The way I remember it is papillary necrosis, seen in NSAIDs, sickle cell anemia, diabetes, and renal vein thrombosis. Again, papillary necrosis, most common etiologies, NSAID use, sickle cell anemia or sickle cell trait, diabetes mellitus, and renal vein thrombosis. Ultrasound feature of testicular lymphoma versus testicular seminoma. Key thing to remember, seminoma is a hypoechoic mass within the testis, and lymphoma is multiple hypoechoic masses within the testis. So multiple small masses, think lymphoma. Single hypoechoic mass, think seminoma. Staging of cervical cancer. 
So the key stage is stage two and three versus four. Now, stage one is cervical cancer that is limited to the cervix. cervix. Stage two cervical cancer, the cancer extends beyond the cervix and can involve the upper two-thirds of the vagina, but no involvement of the pelvic wall. Additionally, if we have parametrial involvement, that would make it stage 2b. Again, parametrial involvement is stage 2b. Now, if it extends beyond the lower two-thirds of the vagina, meaning the lower third of the vagina or pelvic wall, then it's considered stage 3. And finally, if it extends beyond the true pelvis, so involves the rectum or the bladder, then it is considered stage 4 again. Rectum bladder, stage 4, lower third of the vagina, stage 3, upper two-third of the vagina, stage 2, and finally confined to the cervix is stage 1. Review from yesterday, what is skin gland cyst? This is a cystic dilation of normally existing skin glands, and this is secondary to ductal obstruction, Now, the location is a round cystic lesion positioned anterior vaginal inlet. Again, Bartland cyst, we said behind or posterior wall of the vaginal inlet, skin gland in the anterior vaginal wall. They have many ways they can show it to you. Simplest way on a sagittal MRI with a T2 cystic characteristic cyst. It can be at level of the urethra indicating that it is the level of the anterior vaginal inlet and if they were trying to show you a Bartlett cyst it will be closer to the anal verge and that would be posterior vaginal inlet. Imaging features of visceral angioedema or intestinal angioedema. What we see on imaging we see a long segment of concentric thickening of the bowel submucosa typically involves the jejunum. Now, etiologies are where they ask it or how they ask the question. We have three common etiologies. The one they're most likely asked about is ACE inhibitors. So patients who are being treated with blood pressure on ACE inhibitors can develop visceral or intestinal angioedema. Now, hereditary or acquired C1 inhibitor deficiency can lead to intestinal angioedema as well. Again, ACE inhibitors associated with visceral angioedema. It's also known as intestinal angioedema. And the way it presents, presents with a long focal segment of concentric thickening of the bowel submucosa. What are risk factors for placenta creta? Well, what is placenta creta? This is abnormal insertion of the placenta and it's classified based on how deeply the placenta involves the uterine muscles. Now, again, risk factor for placenta creta are prior C-section and placenta previa, meaning surgical disruption of the uterine canal and abnormal insertion of the placenta. Out-of-phase imaging features of clear RCC, obviously the name clear RCC, RCC stems from when they take the slice and put it on pathology, the fat dissolves, and so they get holes within the cells, and that's where the name comes from. But what we care about is the MRI features. 
we have signal drop out on the out of phase imaging because it contains microscopic fat and that's where the fat drops out and causes the name clear cell RCC. Again, clear cell RCC would have signal dropout on out of phase imaging. Benign neurogenic neoplasm of the sympathetic ganglia. Again, sympathetic ganglia typically arises in the pervertebral sympathetic chain in the posterior mediastinum can be retroperitoneal as well and may involve the adrenal gland and the neck adrenal gland because of the sympathetic innervation to the adrenal gland. This is paraspinal ganglioneuroma. Again, paraspinal ganglioneuroma is a benign neoplasm of sympathetic origins, most commonly seen in the posterior mediastinum, can be retroperitoneal, and finally can be involving the adrenal gland or even the neck tissue where there are sympathetic innervations and typically present a young adult with vertically oriented homogeneous pervertebral mass. If they were showing you a patient with sickle cell disease, then it would look like extramedullary hematopoiesis if the patient is sickle cell disease. If the patient doesn't have it, young patient, think of paraspinal ganglioneuroma. Key imaging features of adenomyosis. We have heterogeneous uterus with numerous subendometrial cysts. These cysts correlate with what we see on MRI. Again, heterogeneous uterus with echogenic cyst. These cysts are within the myometrial or subendometrial, and typically in a normal myometrium, it would be hypoechoic, but with the presence of the cyst, it can be mildly echogenic or hyperechoic. On MRI, we see the, the cyst as T2 bright lesions, and the key feature on MRI is junctional zone thickness greater than 12 millimeters considered diagnostic. Typically, is seen to involve the posterior uterine wall. 8 to 12 millimeter is indeterminate, and less than 8 is not consistent with adenomyosis. Now, adenomyosis is endometrial tissue, meaning the tissue that lines the endometrial canal within the myometrium. Key important fact is the adenomyosis or endometrial tissue within the myometrium is not hormonally responsive or does not change or cause cyclical bleeding. That is in contradistinction from endometrial tissue that involves the abdomen or ovaries as we see with endometriosis. They would cause cyclical bleeding and they would cause characteristic imaging features because of their bleed, because they are hormonally responsive. What is the differential for squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder? We have mainly two things, chronic catheter or suprapubic catheter insertion, schizosomiasis, which would cause bladder calcifications. If they show you bladder calcifications, they not, might not give you the history of chronic schizosomiasis infection, and they want you to come to that conclusion. Again, differential for squamous cell carcinoma of the bladder is chronic catheter, particularly suprapubic catheter because these are chronic, and schizosomiasis infection. Typical MRI features of prostate cancer nodule. Prostate cancer nodules are typically T2 dark. They restrict diffusion, 
and they demonstrate early enhancement and washout, just typical to breast imaging where we have early enhancement and washout kinetics. Again, key features of prostate cancer, T2 dark, they can restrict diffusion and early washout. Ovarian transitional cell tumor that are composed of epithelial cells resembling the urothelium. This is Brenner tumor. Again, Brenner tumor is an ovarian transitional cell tumor composed of epithelial cells that resembles the urothelium. I repeated this question probably a million times since yesterday, but I think because it lends itself to an easily asked question, can be asked in different ways. Testicular tumor with elevated beta-HCG. We said when we think of beta-HCG, the first thing we come to our mind is choriocarcinoma, but also seminoma. Again, beta-HCG elevation can be seen in seminoma or choriocarcinoma. Vesa previa, that is fetal vessels crossing the cervical os. It's two types Type 1, where there is vesa privia with velomatous insertion of the cord into the placenta. What is velomatous insertion of the cord? That's when the cord inserts on the edge of the placenta. Normally, you want the cord to insert into the middle of the placenta, not around the edges. Velomatous insertion is when the cord inserts on the edge of the placenta, if that cord that inserts on the edge of the placenta crosses the cervical os, then it's vasa previa type 1. Vasa previa type 2 is when we have the placenta itself is split into two parts and the vessels that connect the two parts of the placenta would cross the cervical os, meaning we have normal insertion of the cord in vasa previa type 2 but the placenta is bilobed and the communication between the lobes of the placenta crosses the cervical os. What are the phases of CT urogram? We have two phases for CT well we have four phases for CT urogram. One is the arterial phase, and this is typically 25 seconds after injection of contrast, and we have opacification of the renal artery. The second phase is the corticomedullary phase or angiographic phase, which is 40 seconds after insertion or injection of contrast material, and it is best for evaluation of the renal vein. The medulla is not well opacified, and we can see the difference between the cortex and the medulla. That's why it's called the corticomedullary phase, because we can distinguish the cortex from the medulla. The third phase is the nephrographic phase, and it is the best phase for evaluation of parenchymal lesion, because the cortex and the medulla will both be enhancing and bright. And finally, the pilographic or excitatory or urographic phase. This is typically three minutes after injection of contrast material, 
and we'll see contrast material fill in the collecting system and the ureters. Again, four phases, arterial phase, corticomedullary phase. The corticomedullary phase is a phase where the cortex enhance and the medulla does not enhance or there is mild enhancement of the medulla of the kidney. The nephrographic phase is a phase where both the cortex and the medulla would enhance and it's the best phase to study parenchymal lesions. And finally, pilographic or excretory phase or urographic phase. This is where we see felon defect if there is a mass or a stone in the collecting system. What is amniotic band syndrome? This is a pathology or a syndrome that results in amputation of digits or even hands and fingers due to disruption of the amniotic layer. So the fetus sits in the amnion and then the amniotic membrane contains the amnion, which is the fluid that the baby swims in. If the amniotic membrane gets disrupted, then the fetus is exposed into the chorionic cavity, which contains fibrotic tissue. This fibrotic tissue leads to autoamputations or amputations of the organs that we described. Again, amniotic band syndrome results from the disruption of the amniotic cavity or amniotic membrane that surrounds the fetus. Pathologies related to unicornuate uterus. So unicornuate uterus, meaning that there is one horn of the uterus with either absent or morphologically uh, dysmorphic contralateral horn. Now, it is associated with epsilateral renal development, meaning where we have the one horn that is dysmorphic or absent. On that same side, there's also epsilateral renal development. So they can show you a pelvis ultrasound with finding concerning for a unicornuate horn or unicornuate uterus, and they ask you what's the next step would be imaging of the abdomen, so MRI abdomen pelvis, not only pelvis because of the associated renal anomalies. Now you can have different morphologies, one from completely absent horn, so isolated unicornuate uterus, or you can have a unicornuate uterus with a non-cavitary rudimentary horn, meaning there is a horn without any endometrial canal in it. You can have a unicornuate plus a non-communicating cavitary horn, and you can have a unicornuate uterus with a rudimentary horn, meaning that small horn would communicate with the unicornuate uterus endometrial canal. There are host of complications, including pregnancy and ectopic pregnancy related to having a rudimentary horn. We're not going to get into that much detail. Just remember, they can have epsilateral renal development issues, and you want to screen abdomen and pelvis for associated anomalies. We will end with this question. You're shown a fetal ultrasound probably at 10 weeks or 8 weeks, and they're showing you structures that they want you to label. Now, on a normal fetal ultrasound at 6 weeks or let's say 8 weeks, we still have the yellow sac and then we have amniotic cavity. Both the yellow sac, the amniotic cavity are separate sacs, 
the yellow sac now is smaller than the amniotic cavity. And then both of those sacs, so two sacs next to each other, one is much bigger than the other, sit within the chorionic cavity. So yellow sac and amniotic sac, both within the chorionic cavity. Within the amniotic sac, we have the fetus. So the fetus sits within the amniotic sac, and that's the solid structure. You see the amniotic cavity. So again, you have two circles. One is bigger than the other. The smaller one at eight weeks or 10 weeks is the yellow sac. The bigger one is the amniotic cavity. Within the amniotic cavity, we see a solid structure. That is the fetus. Within that solid structure, you see a small cystic cavity. This is the rhomboencephalon and all of this contained within the chorionic cavity. Hopefully you can visualize it. If, if it's difficult, you got to at least see an ultrasound to know what I'm talking about. And if you can see it on ultrasound, that would be an easy question if they ask it. Thank you and have a good day.